you would please take your Bibles out and open them up to 1 Timothy. There we resume our study this morning. As you well know, if you've been with us, that we have been making our way through this first letter to Timothy. And last Sunday we finished up chapter 4, and this week we begin chapter 5. And as we know, as we've been looking at this particular letter in the New Testament, that it was Paul's purpose to write Timothy, who was overseeing the church at Ephesus, or a church at Ephesus, and Paul was giving him the different instructions for how worship was to go, for how Timothy was to carry himself, for how he was to interact with people, how he was to, in his own life, be faithful, and so much of it centers around Timothy being faithful to proclaim truth in every area. So when we think about truth proclamation, it's easy to just assume that Paul's focus is only on correcting false teaching. That is a primary focus on Timothy. But when Paul is telling Timothy to proclaim truth, he means into every situation. Be honest and truthful about your relationships. Be honest and truthful in worship. Be honest and truthful with false teachers because Paul understands the central notion or the central theme, the idea that when we have to have truth to build on that foundation. Truth is so foundational to everything that we're not going to build something that stands if we don't build it on truth. That is why lives and ideologies and philosophies built on things that are false, they crumble. They can't stand. They eat themselves. We watch it happen all the time. If you're paying attention in our world You're seeing different philosophies and ideologies that are coming out, and they end up caving in on themselves because the foundation upon which they're built are lies. It's not true. The only thing that stands and that stands for any amount of time is something that is built on truth. And so let us have truth and deny everything else. Let us have truth, though it cost us everything, because without truth, we have nothing. And so that's why Paul is so adamant with Timothy. This morning, what I like is the, the attention to detail that the apostle pays in terms of, hey, the gospel has a ripple effect, and it's meant to ripple out and affect things. In other words, the gospel is the message of Jesus Christ redeeming his people. But when we receive and believe the gospel, when the gospel transforms us, it transforms us at every level. And so by virtue of that transformation, it has implications for how we live, how we interact, how we carry ourselves. In everything that we do, it has implications. And that's exactly what Paul is talking about this morning in this passage of Scripture, is what the gospel does for relationships. And so without further delay, let's turn our attention now to God's Word. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 1 to 8. Beloved of God, this is God's infallible, inerrant word. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, all in all purity. Honor widows who are truly widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has her hope, has set her hope on God, and continues in supplication and prayers night and day, but she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. 
command these things as well, so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So ends the reading of God's Word. May he add his blessing. Please pray with me now. Father, uh, your Word is set before us. We come to it now. We come to it to drink deeply, to satiate our souls, to have real food to nourish us. Father, we pray that you would nourish us this morning with your word, that you would transform us, that we would be renewed in minds and hearts, and that we would never be the same again. It's through Christ we pray. Amen. I was thinking this week about relationships. I spent a lot of time thinking about relationships, and it is amazing to me how one wedding ceremony totally transforms relationships for men and women. Because after that wedding ceremony, the way you relate to your spouse is different than before, or at least it's supposed to be. Our culture has a problem with this, but we won't talk about that right now. It's, it, that wedding ceremony, that, that time in the presence of God and in the presence of witnesses, it truly is a transforming event because now my relationship to this person changes. Now I no longer live for myself. I no longer do what is only pleasing to me. I no longer only consider how this is going to affect me. Now I'm in a spiritual and physical one flesh union with this person. And my life is tied up to their life. Our lives are bound together. And the decisions we make affect one and the other. We are forever, forever, eternally bound together through this union. And it changes the way we have to treat each other. It changes the way that we look each other. It changes the way in which we interact with each other and the things that we will now do. I mean, I do stuff with, uh, well, never mind. I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to get in trouble talking about marriage and life. Um, I'm just going to stick to the facts here. So once those vows, once those vows are taken, it truly changes this relationship. And this relationship is like no other relationship. It's unique it's special, and it's one for which we give our lives, right? We lay down our lives to, with, and for one another. Well, when we think about the gospel, it calls us, when we think about marriage, we're called to love, we're called to serve, we're called to sacrifice. When we think about the gospel and what it does for us, Brad, what is the gospel? Let me a- answer that question first. When when I'm saying the word gospel, here is what I mean. Paul, I'll sum it up using Paul. God made him, that is Jesus, who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him, that is in Christ, we we would have the righteousness of God. And so when that transformation happens, it has implications. It changes us. We go from, we go from living for self and living for flesh to now in a union with Christ, in a union with the people of Christ, so that we can love, serve, and sacrifice. And so truth demands that we relate to one another in congruence with God's Word. So Paul is getting at that here. When we read this paragraph in 1 Timothy, we should be astounded at the attention to detail that Paul pays, because he tells Timothy, there's a proper way to relate to every generation in your church. Every one, there's a proper way. There is, when you look at widows, and we think about widows in the ancient world being one of the most vulnerable classes 
in the world. Paul is telling Timothy, you see that vulnerable class of people there, those women? They need your care. They need your help. What is right and proper for the church to do is to care for the most vulnerable in her midst. And so when we think about the gospel, it does deliver, it does redeem, but it also has practical value because principles of gospel truth, they reshape and they reform our understanding of everything. One of the things that we go when we are not saved to being saved is this deeper appreciation for the image of God imprinted on all of us. And so by virtue of that truth, by virtue of that truth alone, it shapes how we relate to one another, even people with whom we have disagreements, even with people whom we may even label as our enemies. It changes the way that we relate to them. It has to because we understand that that person too, though we disagree, are also made in the image of God. When we think about Greek culture, one of the things that we know, historically speaking, is Greeks, from the highest to the lowest, thought it was repugnant to be thought of as a servant. And yet here we have Paul telling Timothy, this young man who is pastoring a church in a predominantly Greek culture, saying, your primary objective is to serve and to serve the most vulnerable in your midst. So now we're not looking down on this type of service. We're exalting it to the place in which God has placed it. We're exalting this type of service to a place that honors God, that sees no one as lesser because of their social or cultural situation. So Paul was very detailed in, in these instructions. He says there's a proper way to interact with every age group in the church. He spends uh, chapter 5, verse 1, all the way through chapter 6, verse 2, telling Timothy, this is how you treat who is it? widows, it's elders, it's slaves. It's all the different, these different groups that Timothy's going to be interacting with in his church. Paul's saying there's a proper way to deal with that. Why? Well, because if we've truly been transformed by the gospel, then God's word is true, and it, it demands that we live our lives in a certain way. And that's exactly what Paul is telling Timothy here. So when, when we're relating to other people, it is not a matter of what is good in our own eyes. It's doing what's in keeping with God's Word. That's the central message here. So with those thoughts in mind, there's one idea I want for us to see. It's this, that trust in gospel truth means that we treat people appropriately. Trust in gospel truth means that we treat people appropriately. So the whole tenor of this, and it's actually going to continue on in the paragraph, we really could take 1 through 16 as one paragraph, but I've broken it up into these smaller chunks so uh, we could get through it. But it's all about relating rightly, First, verses 1 to 2 about how we relate to the different generations, and then the remainder of it is going to be how we relate rightly to widows. So the gospel not only redeems, it dictates how we treat people. When you look here, starting in verse 1, do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, in all purity. So you have these generational relationships, and there's a proper way for us to relate all in the church. And in fact, this is where I want to make a little application here. Paul's assumption of Timothy is that he would indeed be interacting with all the different generations in the church, both male and female. 
Now, it makes sense because Timothy, by all rights, is kind of the head overseer in this church. But this bears a little application for us. How generational are you in your relationships in the church? Do you tend to just stay within your own age group or the old people that are kind of in your circle because it's easy? Or do you intentionally get out of your age bracket and try to have relationships with people who are older and people who are younger? Because the whole beauty of the church is that we have a diversity of generations in here with different experiences. We rob ourselves... We rob ourselves and other people if we just stick within our age group and don't try to get to know everyone throughout the generations because there are people who are older than you that have some wonderful counsel that you need. And there are people who are younger than you that might have some insights on life that that you've missed. So why not step out of our comfort zones, if that's what it takes, and get involved with different generations because it is a blessing to them, it will be a blessing to you, and it pleases the Lord. So Paul tells her, he starts with Timothy, how, how will Timothy interact with these older men? He tells Timothy not to rebuke here. And I want to just take a few minutes. That word rebuke there, don't think of it as just rebuke. Literally, the word means like don't strike out at. That would be the, the, the literal meaning of the word. But it's probably used in the Bible here means don't be harsh. So more accurately is, hey, Timothy, don't be harsh with older men relate to them or exhort them, him as you would, a father. So he's telling Timothy, it's not that you can't have confrontations. Paul would anticipate that Timothy might have to confront some older men who are not, you know, in keeping with the word. He's saying, but when you do it, they're older than you. They deserve your respect. So you be respectful, not harsh, kind. You can be to the point, and you can be to the point without being unloving. You can be to the point without being mean. And so he's telling Timothy, don't be harsh with older men. Think of them as you would a father and treat them and talk to them that way. That even in confrontation, Timothy, show deference to that man. And that's good, that is a good philosophy for us to follow. Younger men, he says, treat as brothers. What does he mean by that? Not condescending, not unnecessarily mean, Treat them as somebody that you love, that you care for, that you want to have a relationship with. Older women as mothers, with all the respect and grace you show your mom, show it to the older women in your congregation who have earned it. That's the, that's the uh, implication. Does these people have, are at a place in life where they've earned the respect? And in this way, it reminds us, when we think about honoring a woman as a mother, one of the last things that Jesus did, mind you, from the cross, having had his back flayed open with a whip and his body mutilated beyond recognition, took time to make sure his mother was cared for. Now, that ought to tell us something, that when Paul is te- laying this charge of Timothy, treat your older women as mothers, keep in mind what was, how do we imitate Christ, that Christ in his moment of death said to John, John, this is your mother. Mother, this is your son. He's making sure to honor his mother even in the throes of death. And Timothy was to emulate that, and we should as well. And he tells Timothy with younger women, relate to them as sisters. Why? Why are why sisters? Well, A, it's a, it's a mutual platonic love that exists. 
But he's also, this careful instruction to not sexualize those relationships. Yes, even in the ancient world, that was still an issue that we had to deal with because male and female are male and female. And so by telling Timothy to treat them as sisters, and then he goes one step further, he's saying, hey, don't sexualize the relationship. In fact, choose purity. That's what he says. He says, in all purity. Choose purity. Choose dignity. Choose respect. When we think about relationships, every relationship we have in our lives, if we are Christians, if you call Christ Lord this morning, every relationship you have in your life is shaped by the gospel. And so what that means is within the, the confines of those relationships, the two, the two pillars, and maybe they're not even two, maybe they're one of the same, would be love and service. How do, we, how do we love and serve one another? How do I show respect to you? How, do I, how can I make sure that I avoid disrespect or being demeaning or being suspicious that leads to slander and gossip? See, when we get these right, when we get the love, service, and respect right, it totally, or not totally, but it, it greatly diminishes the capacity for slander and gossip because now my aim is to respect and love you and serve you not to tear you down. And so that's why it has practical value. We just got to remember, we have to, we have to remember this. You know, in this, in this kind of caustic culture that we live in, that, you know, on Twitter, if you say, I like Oreos, people get mad at you because it's not chocolate chips. I mean, it's crazy the way, the volatility these days, when you just make one statement. It's like, Man, I, I sure do love my wife. Why do you hate him? And it's like, whoa, I was just talking about my wife. Um, but that's the culture we, we live in. So it, it's paramount for us as believers to not give in to that, to not give in to that nonsense, that when we think about us as Christians, beloved, as Christians, we don't have the option to treat people poorly. We have a call to love and honor and respect and I'm not saying that's easy. And I'm not saying there, there's sometimes I just have to bite my tongue and walk away because I don't want to say the demeaning thing. And there's oftentimes I'll let it fly. And then I feel terrible afterwards, mostly. And so this is convicting to me, honestly. If I'm not preaching to you this morning, I am preaching to myself about just being reminded that because of the Imago Dei, the image of God imprinted on every human being, we as believers in Christ who are told to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us do not have the freedom and the option to treat people poorly. We are called to a more excellent way, to something that is exemplary. Remember that Paul had told Timothy to be, a, to be an example to the believers and word, and conduct, and love, and faith. And that's our calling. As Paul transitions out of that, he lays that down about how you're going to interact with different generations. He immediately moves into treatment of widows. Starts off in verse 3 with honor widows who are truly widows. And I'm going to start right there. So what, what, what we want to do here is recognize a widow, as I've already made the, the point, Widows in this culture, highly vulnerable people, highly vulnerable people that needed protection. We think about the unborn in our own day. When we think about the most vulnerable in, in, in our midst would be the unborn, and they need 
our help. They need, sadly, they need our protection. So Paul is laying this out. He's telling Timothy and the church that the church is called to care for the most vulnerable. In fact, when he says honor widows who are truly widows, that word, their honor, is an express command. It's a perpetual call to honor widows, and it has a, do, it has a twofold meaning in this context. Certainly, Paul means show respect to, respect their persons. This is something, a radical concept in the ancient world that if a widow had nobody, I mean, widow could be a death sentence to, to some poor lady who lost her husband and had no family to take care of her. And in, in pagan cultures, it often was. So Paul is saying, hey, give her respect, which is radical. He's departing from convention here. Give her respect. Honor her. But we need to also know that this word honor, the implication is not just respect. He's talking about finances. In other words, it may come a time, Timothy, where y'all have to help her out financially, and you need to be ready to honor her and help her out. That's Paul's point here, and it's commiserate with James chapter 1, verse 27, when he says what? That true religion is what? Caring for the orphan and caring for the widow. In other words, James is saying the evidence that you truly are walking with Christ is in practical things that you do. Are you willing to care for the least of these? And when we look at the history of the church, I know she gets a bad rap for so many things. When you look at the history of the church and the primary ministries that happened throughout God's church through history was ministries to widows and orphans and hospitals and then eventually universities. But my point is, is that one of the ways in which we show that we truly do believe the gospel, Paul is saying here, is in how we treat people and how we interact and what we're willing to do. So when we think about we, we want to be sound in our theology, and we do, and I do. We, we need to be. But sound theology has to lead to a life well lived. Sound theology has to lead us into these corridors where we have to get our hands dirty with the practice of true religion, which is loving and serving people. Now, Paul does clarify this. He says, but... If a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. So Paul gives his first caveat. Yes, we need to honor widows. Yes, that may mean financial care. But if she has family, she needs to ask them first. Her family are the ones who need to be stepping up first. That's Paul's point, very pragmatic. Widows with children or grandchildren, he says, should appeal to them first. When he says this, he says, but if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn. Let them first learn is an express command directed to the children. Let the children learn what true godliness is through fidelity to their own family. In other words, hey, do you want to be really godly and spiritual? Can you take care of your family? Because that's going to be a, a big marker of it. No, not can you, can you, you know, tell me the nuances of the uh, lapsarian debates, or can you tell me the nuances of the hypostatic union, or you can tell me all this, but if you can't care for your family, you are missing something. All that sound theology is not translating to a life well lived. Something is missing. It's like your heart is missing something. So he's saying that those children should learn godliness through serving 
their parents. Caring for parents, Paul says it pleases God. And this should not be lost on us. Of course, we think, of course it does. In fact, it pleases God so much that it's been enshrined and ratified in the Ten Commandments as the Fifth Commandment. Honor your father and your mother that it may go well for you. So Paul is essentially telling Timothy that part of verse 4 is, hey, these children and grandchildren need an opportunity to honor their mother. And when she is at her worst, to be able to come alongside and give her the attentive care that she needs. Paul continues here. This is pleasing in the sight of God. So make note of that, that this type of practical ministry is pleasing. It pleases God when that happens. Do we want to please God in our lives, be attentive to the needs around us? Obviously, we can't fill every need. I know that, and Paul knows that. But our posture towards the vulnerable should be to love and protect and serve. That should be our general demeanor. Now, Paul clarifies, so you've got this caveat. So if she's got family, she needs to be appealing to her family. She is truly a widow, verse 5, Paul says. He tells us what it is, is left all alone. She has her hope, her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers day and night. And I'm going to stop right there, even though verse 6 is part of that sentence. She, so let's break us down by phrase. She was truly a widow. So a true widow is one who's destitute. She's left alone. She's alone in the world. And so when we think about that type of situation, yes, that's when the vulnerability happens because she has really no one in any blood connection, no family to come alongside and care for her. Now, typically in the ancient world, younger widows would either remarry or they would have an option to go back to their family home. And in most cases, that's what they did. The more vulnerable would be the older widows who had no family home to go back to, who perhaps maybe had no children or her children had all died. And so Paul is talking about this woman who is a destitute woman who needs not just finances, she needs fellowship, she needs friends, she needs people in her life to come alongside of her and just love her well. And that, that should not always translate to money, though sometimes it will have to. But he says, I love how he describes her because he talks about a certain line of fidelity here that's important for us to notice. Even in her destitution, she's left all alone, she has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. Despite her destitute situation, she hopes on God and continues in her relationship with Him. And so, her, she's marked by faithfulness in prayer, night and day, he says. Her faithfulness in prayer. This is where I think there's a practical lesson here for all of us. Usually, when we experience what I'll call destitution, and may, maybe not to this degree, but let's just call it destitution for the sake of clarity, or for the sake of argument. When we experience destitution, so often our temptation is to pull back from the Lord because we just don't feel like we're connecting with God in our hurts. When actually, we should be doing the very opposite 
that in our valleys of pain, there we should be pressing in more deeply. And Paul says that she, the faithfulness of this woman is seen in the fact that in her destitution, she presses in to the Lord. In her most desperate hour, she is still seen, seen in prayer, praying for her daily bread, perhaps, praying for other people in her church, or whatever the case may be. She is faithful in prayer. And so, in our most desperate hours, we should be pressing in. And I'm telling you, again, this is where it's convicting to me personally because I start asking myself, well, Brad, are you pressing in in your most desperate hours? Sometimes yes, and, and sometimes not as much as I could be. But this is that reminder that in destitution, our hope is in the living God, is in the living God. And when we are in our most desperate state, we can press into this living God who longs to be gracious to us according to Isaiah chapter 30. And Paul says we see the faithfulness in this woman because of her willingness to press into the Lord even though she's in a desperate situation. But then he adds another point of clarification changing directions. But she who is self-indulgent is dead while she lives. This is a sobering verse, actually. When you think about, but she who is self-indulgent is dead while she lives. Now, I'm going to give you the literal translation of this because there's a perfect verb in there. Brad, what is a perfect verb? A perfect verb in Greek is a verb that has a past action with a present reality. So, if the Greek writers want to communicate something that is continuous, they'll often use what's called the perfect verb. That's what we have here in this verse. ESV, I understand why they wrote, wrote it this way, because it reads better. But literally, but she who is self-indulgent has died while living. That's what the verse says. She who is self-indulgent has died while living. So, Brad, why are you making this point? Because it's interesting. If she has been dead in the past, her self-indulgence is a fruit of her dead heart. Her self-indulgence is a fruit of her distance from the Lord. Her self-indulgence is the fruit of some misunderstanding of truth and gospel. So she's not, she's not dying because she's self-indulgent. Her heart is dead, and her self-indulgence is the fruit of that. That's what Paul is driving at. And that type of person, what do we mean by self-indulgent? Well, the implication that Paul has here is living for pleasure, not service. Living for self, not to love and respect other people. To just amass for herself all the pleasure she can. Think hedonism. Think hedonism in this. The uh, pursuit of pleasure in the absence of pain. That that is what she has done. And her actions now, her self-indulgence, show what is already true of her heart. Because she has died in the past death here. Think of death separation from. So when we think about separation, like why do we call death death? Well, for one reason, because the soul is separated from the body. There's a separation of sorts that happens. And why, we, why do we call it dead in sin? Because in a meaningful way, we're separated from God, and we need that restoration. Why is she, though she's alive, in other words, she's living, she's living and breathing, but the life that is most important in her is missing. She is separated. Her heart is separated from the Lord. She is false. Paul is trying to clarify. You know why? Because he wanted the church resources, which were limited, to go to the people 
that were truly of the body and not people who were just trying to live for pleasure. Not just people trying to take advantage of a situation so that they could maybe not have to pay this bill or that bill so they could have money for this. In other words, he's looking for people who are genuinely faithful and not pretenders. And that's a good, that's a good standard to have, actually. It still carries on through to this day. So she has died even while she lives. He says, again, familiar phrase in this book, command these things as well so that they may be without reproach. Again, we've already seen Paul say this to Timothy several times. Command and teach these things. Command these things. It's an express command. He's telling Timothy, command these things. What is the these things referring to? As we've said before, is it referring to the whole letter? Is it referring to what follows after it? Or is it referring to what precedes it? Well, in this case, the command these things is exactly what Paul has just said about widows. In other words, this is not my opinion, Timothy. This is not a suggestion to you. This is the standard of the church at Ephesus. This is what it will be. With all the apostolic authority that Paul has, he's telling Timothy, this is not just a great suggestion or some wise counsel. This is what you will do. This is how it will be done. And beloved, we should be doing it this way because this ensures biblical fidelity. So when we, he says, command these things that they may be above reproach or without reproach. And that gives us another little insight. What is the purpose of truth? Well, it is to lead, it's to teach, it's to ground but it's also to keep us in a place that is above reproach. Now, don't hear above criticism. People will criticize people of truth, and it's just, it's just the reality. Hear above reproach. In other words, blameless, not that you're perfect, not that we don't ever do anything wrong, but with regards to our, to our word and faith, we live in keeping with God's word. Now, yes, I have to give the caveat. Will we do it perfectly? No, that's the beauty of repentance. That's why this morning in my pastoral prayer, I I made a prayer of repentance to the Lord because there are times where we do fall down and make stupid decisions. However, truth, if we abide in and by the truth, it does keep us above reproach, and that is where God calls us to walk. And so one of our prayers is, is that the truth be powerful enough in our lives that we do want to abide in it and live above reproach. But I love that Paul gives that clarification. Command these things because they're right and good and true, but command them and so that as people walk in the truth, they are walking blamelessly. Paul ends this little paragraph here with one of the more sobering passages in this letter. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he's denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So if we, as a general principle, understand that the Imago Dei, the image of God imprinted on people, transforms how we treat them, how much more does it transform how we treat those within our immediate family and how we care for them? What Paul says here, just to put it bluntly, failure to provide for immediate family shows one to be condemned. Now, when we think about this, Because perhaps right now you already have in your mind family members 
that you have helped and maybe took advantage of a situation, or family members who repeatedly got themselves into a pickle, just not refusing to take wise counsel, refusing to, to uh, hear uh, questions or, or allow you into the issues so that you can help better determine. We've probably all had those types of experiences. So here's what this verse is not saying. What this verse is not saying is help anybody in your family for any reason with no questions. Because despite the fact that we should be, our posture toward our family should be generosity, we also have to be wise and discerning. I.e., if you have a family member who you know is addicted to drugs and they're constantly asking you for money for which you know they are spending that money in an attempt to get more drugs, you are not in violation of this verse if you withhold the money because at that point giving them the money is speeding them to their demise. There, maybe there are other situations. There's somebody who is in your family who's constantly needing money and you've, you've been generous and you've been generous and you've always tried to attach wise counsel and they never take it but yet they always want you to give them more money. In those situations, we are not in violation of this verse if we eventually say, brother or sister, I love you. The money ain't helping. There's another problem here. It reminds me of the title of a great book. If you've never read it, you should, When Helping Hurts. It's been out for several years now, and it's just good practical advice. It's geared more toward mercy ministries, but at some points you get to a place with people where giving them whatever is doing more harm than good. And so we have to reevaluate. But we who, or rather, our, our, our general disposition to those in our immediate family should be generosity. Generosity with wisdom. And the reason is, is there's, there's a reason behind this. It's because we who know redeeming love, we know what it is to be in need and be in wanting and have the need met. Because on a, on a larger level, we've been forgiven much, and so we want to love much. But here's where it does call for wisdom. That should be our general disposition, but we should always be prudent in how we interact with these. And also keep in mind that when it talks about provision for your immediate family, or I'll say for anybody, it doesn't, the Bible doesn't always have in mind just money. I mean, sometimes people need money. And we need, we need to remember that. Sometimes people do just need the money. Sometimes people need relationship. Um, sometimes maybe people just need a bag of groceries or a cup of coffee. Or There are so many different ways that we can bring provision to people in need that maybe not always require us handing them a check or handing them a wad of cash. Sometimes maybe the best thing we can do for them is meet with them consistently for prayer and encouragement. Because who knows, dear one, you never know when you're going to be the one in need. And you're going to want someone to be generous with you in whatever way that means. And so we should always keep in mind that we reap what we sow. The ripple effect of the gospel is faithfulness in relationships. So often you'll hear this. We've heard it for years. People will say, the gospel is, and then they'll fill in the blank with whatever issue they're concerned about. No, the gospel is a set message. The gospel is a set message that says Jesus has taken our sin and given us his righteousness and that we have now been translated from death to life. Now, the gospel does redeem, 
but it, that restoration might occur. So the gospel redeems, and so when we think about our worldview, creation, fall, redemption, restoration, that restoration, that restorative part is part of what Paul is talking about here. How do we, who are gospel believers, work in the ministry of restoration? Well, it starts in relationship. It starts in the restoration of properly relating to others, that these relationships that have been marred by sin. And so gospel restoration means caring for the vulnerable, Right? caring for the vulnerable, showing deference and, dis- and respect where it is due, not sexualizing relationships and keeping things pure, loving people genuinely, giving ourselves to the service of others. So it's not enough just to simply say the gospel is true. The gospel is true. It must be clearly seen in how we live our lives. If it's the message we proclaim does it seep its way into the way that we live our lives? Does it genuinely affect how we relate with one another? Because Paul says it absolutely must if we are to live in the truth and be above reproach. Please pray with me. Father, thank you for your word this morning. It's truth, it's power, it's beauty. Oh, Father, so much... uh, this is just convicting to my own soul. And I live in a world, we live in a world where hatred is just the um, normal mode of operating. People are caustic. We resort to name-calling. We resort to all manner of degrading of other people who are made in your image. Oh, Father, forgive us. Forgive us. Help us, O Lord, to choose respect and dignity and help us to be consistent in how we apply that and give us grace to treat people as they are made in your image. It's through Christ we pray. Amen.